Thank you, and once again, good day to students and teachers of the Word of God. We have just finished our last week's broadcast, a detailed study of the matter of the victorious Christian life, a very important subject, of course, in the life of the believer and for the born-again child of God, although it has nothing to do with the condition of the unsaved man. The unsaved man can have no victory. For one, he's not in Christ. For number two, he's disobedient to the will of God and the Word of God. Uh, number three, he's rejected the only means of reaching the Father. Christ said, No man cometh to the Father but by me. Uh, and fourthly, he doesn't even know God, because Christ said, No man can know the Father except the Son, and he to whosoever the Son will reveal him. So the victorious Christian life is a matter of Christian theology, not a matter of philosophy or humanism or science. Uh, the unsaved man who is dead and trespassed in sin can never have any victory, and although he may occasionally reform and whitewash the old garbage can and veneer and repaint the rotten furniture, it eventually falls apart, and that's the end of it, and the unsaved man's soul go to the hell in the filthy rags of his own self-righteousness. So when we talk about victorious Christian living, we're never having any reference to an unsaved man trying to keep the sermon in the mouth. That's nonsense. We're talking about the born-again child of God in Christ, who yields the Lord Jesus Christ, who presents his body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is his reasonable service, and by appropriating the power of the Holy Spirit in his vessel, we have this treasure in an earthen vessel, and reckoning himself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, has daily victory as he moment by moment yields to the Savior and reckons his mortal body dead, his life hid with God in Christ, and his affection set on things above and not on things on this earth. <clears throat> this brings us to the next very important subject in the life of the child of God, which we call separation. Separation means separation from certain things and separation to certain things. The meaning of the word in Scripture simply means that the Christian is withdraw himself from evil forces, evil influences, evil company, and is to live a life that's not in line with the world. In short, separation implies conformity to the Word of God and nonconformity to your neighborhood and your relatives and your family and your church where they lined up with the world. John said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, these are hard words, yet as Christians you must face them daily. Some extremists trying to obey them go away in seclusion, live in monasteries, or put up double barbed wire fences around dormitories and try to pretend since they're not supporting people that support modernists, they're not worldly. But worldliness goes far beyond a barbed wire fence and a monastery. We realize that uh, this is wrong, but do we know where to draw the line? Now, you're told, love not the world, neither the things in the world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. This is why Paul said, be not conformed to the world. God said, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. God may have so loved the world, past tense, that he gave his only begotten Son, past tense, to save it. But once having done that, the Lord is against the world, and the world is against him. John says, they are of the world, and the world heareth them, because they are the world. Christ said in John 17, you are not of the world, I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus said in John 17, in spite of what some of you ecumenical people think, I pray not for the world. Now, if you're praying for the world, you're praying for the wrong thing. If you're praying for unsaved men in the world to trust Christ, you're praying for the right thing. 
If you're praying for Jesus Christ to come back and straighten this world mess out, you're praying for the right thing. But if you're praying for world peace, you are a self-deceived fool. I'm quoting from John 17. I'm giving you the opinion of the Lord Jesus Christ in the matter instead of my own. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking in John 17. Verse 14, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse uh, 20, in the same uh, passage, verse uh, 20, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me, through their word. Is he that business? Not one time does he ever say that he's praying for the world. As a matter of fact, he says he's not praying for the world. Verse 5, Now, O Father, glorify thou with me, though with thine own self, for the glory which I have with thee before the world was. Verse 9, I pray for them, I pray not for the world. Is that clear? John 17, 9, Jesus Christ speaking, I pray not for the world. If you do, you're out of the will of God. Your Savior didn't waste five minutes on it. Now, these are hard saying, but they're hard saying because the flesh of the Christian still loves the world. The old unregenerate nature in the Christian, and of course, every child of God has two natures, still loves the world. All right, now, the world refers sometimes to people like John 3.16, and sometimes it refers to the inhabited earth, a world system. God loved the world of sinners and laid down his life for them, so you ought to love sinners individuals and try to get them saved. But the Apostle John explained the meaning of the word world in 1 John 2.16, and he says the world there means the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. The word world means this present world system which is controlled by Satan. And if you want a beautiful explanation of the world system, you should read the note in the Old School Fear Reference Bible under Cosmos Summary, which I believe is found in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation under Cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S Summary, you are told that the world system is often outwardly beautiful and impressive, and often outwardly is religious, and displays art and music and culture, but inside is seething with turmoils, strife, and commercial rivalry, and is held together in times of crisis only by armed force. That's the world system. War is God's judgment on the sin here, and hell is God's judgment on the sin hereafter, and the world system is set up so that in any time of real crisis, it's only held together by killing. That's the world system that Satan offered Jesus Christ in Luke 4 that he turned down. Now, this blessings we have in life that God has given us are said to be things we can enjoy, 1 Timothy 6:17. We're told we're given all things richly to enjoy, but this would include innocent laughter, our children, a clean social life, healthful recreation, the beauty of nature, the love of flowers. These things cannot be unscriptural, worldly, or sinful. Jesus enjoyed nature. He spoke of plants, seeds, and trees. His social contracts were broad with the family at Bethany, eating in the Pharisees' home, the marriage in Cana. In fact, the Savior was accused of being a worldly person in Matthew 11:16 by the doubly separated ultra-separationists 
who put tradition above the Word of God. These self-righteous whitewashed Pharisees, who used more than one version to correct the Word of God, said that they called the Son of Man a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber. The problem of where to draw rules and what is wrong and what is right is very, very difficult. Uh, worldliness many times consists in loving money, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Worldliness consists of wanting to put up beautiful buildings to attract carnal people. Worldliness often consists of spending millions of dollars of God's money on uh, trash around a university to attract uh, millionaires when the money should have gone overseas for missionaries. Worldliness can pop up in a variety of forms. The world has its Bibles. The world has never liked the King James 1611 authorized Bible. Worldly people will prefer any version but it, even if they use it because they have to. One of the quickest ways to spot a worldly Christian is by the fact that he uses the King James and prefers it because he makes a living off it, while he doesn't believe it. This is known as two-faced hypocrisy and is the characteristic of the worldly opportunist who is out to make a book. Now, there are some matters which we can be very definite because the Bible is very definite about them. First of all, marriage between a believer and an unbeliever is forbidden. This is a worldly arrangement, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 to 17. The commandment here is clear, quote, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Amos verse 3 and chapter 3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? This is a definite scriptural principle that changes not with the passing ages. Two cannot walk together except they be agreed. There is no way for a Bible believer to have fellowship with a person who has no absolute authority but their own preference. Two cannot walk together except they be agreed. Degree. There's no way in the world that a saved person and an unsaved person can share the same marriage bed together and serve God when they're on two different tracks, on two different ways, heading to two different eternities. All right, you can be sure about some other matters. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Separate from all unrighteousness. Some would include business partnership between believers and unbelievers as being forbidden by this verse. And, of course, that's an ultra-separatist position of a Pharisee that has nothing to do with anything. It is never a compromise to go as far as you can along the right road with anybody. It is not a sin to conduct business with any unsaved person as long as you don't have to do wrong to conduct your business. The ultra-separated Pharisee, what we call the double separationist, the ultra-Pharisee the in America, the ultra-fundamentalist, thinks it's wrong to have any contact with anybody who has any contact with anybody who has any contact with anybody. One of these great hypocritical institutions in America is always bellyaching about some of the brethren going along with the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program, and that same school pays Christian money from God's people to pay honorariums for unsaved musicians and singers to come in and entertain the students. So we have the ultra-Phariseistic separation position, which is nonsense. Now the Christian is separate from works of darkness. But above all, he's to separate himself from, pe from himself from people who use good words and fair speeches to deceive the hearts of the simple. The belly worshippers, Romans chapter 16, Philippians chapter 3, are the modern conservatives and fundamentalists who spend their life correcting and altering the Word of God to suit their fancy and make their income from doing this. Because they get the income from doing this, they feed their stomach. And you're told in Romans 16, 18, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but, with their, own, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Now you are told absolutely to separate yourself from this bunch. 
Romans 16, 17, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine, not the feeling or the experience, the doctrine which you have learned. What doctrine? The book of Romans. And avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the heart from the simple. Now you're told, avoid them. You are to separate yourself from that crowd. Then you're to separate yourself, there's no doubt about this, from any professing Christian who is a fornicator. We find these warnings in 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we find in verse 9, I wrote you an epistle not to keep company with fornicators. Now I have written to you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one, don't eat. So you're told to separate yourself from those kind of Christians, not have fellowship with them. Separate yourself from the devil. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Second Corinthians 6.15. Separate yourself from infidels. Second Corinthians 6.15. What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Separate from idols. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? When you make an idol out of your ministry or your church or your school, you're an idolater. Separate from false teachers that dispute about the primary doctrines. First Timothy 6.5 says, From such, withdraw yourself. When you find a teacher recommending a new ASV that denies the virgin birth in Luke 2.33, the deity of Christ in 1 Timothy 3.16, and teaches two created gods in John 1.18, you are to separate yourself from those false teachers because those are primary doctrines. Notice especially 1 Timothy 1.4, 1 Timothy 4.7, Galatians 3.2, and 1 Timothy 6.5. Any teacher that denies that the blood of Christ is necessary for redemption, Colossians 1.14, by taking through his blood out of that verse, is a heretic or a false teacher, and from such you are to withdraw yourself. 1 Timothy 6.5. Separate yourself from heretics. 2 John 9-11. People that teach two created gods. Come around to your house with a watchtower and try to tell you one is a big god and one is a little one, like the New American Standard Version. You don't allow such people in your home. Separate yourself from all forms of sin and immorality. You're told in 1 Thessalonians 4, the will of God is for your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Now, there may be some matters that are not too easy to define, but these matters are easy to define. And there's some rules you can go by that really tie these things down. When we talk about separation, we can ask ourselves this. What I'm getting ready to do, is it for God's glory? Okay, don't stop there. They used to kill Christians for God's glory. Number two, can I ask God's blessing upon it? Don't stop there. The Inquisition used to ask God the blessed instrument of torture before they tortured Christians. Don't stop there. Number three, would I like to have Christ finding me do it if he came back? Number four, is it a good example? Okay, now you're getting down the nitty-gritty. No man liveth to himself, no man dieth to himself. And finally, is my motive for doing this to help myself, or is my motive for doing this because... God, in his word, told me to do it according to his word, and I know his word told me. Never mind this stuff about I feel the Holy Ghost and I feel the Lord leading, you know, all these demon-possessed Christian today that they feel led every time they turn around to do everything in the world except obey God. We're not talking about that. 
We're talking about obeying God according to what God said. Now, some matters are not too definite, the matter of time. How much time you ought to give to worship, business, study, family, pleasure, soul winning, prayer. To give excessive time to any one field would be entirely wrong in relation to the entire day or life for which we are responsible. Uh, Bob Jones Sr. used to say something very wise. He used to say, duties never conflict. God never put a man in a place where he had to do five different things that conflicted. Something always takes a priority. These matters will have to be prayed about. Pleasure, generally pleasant, innocent, enjoyable, is all right, but some types are harmful. Uh, for example, such things as uh, cards and games of chance that throw dice, tamper with divine providence, and forget the fact that nothing is chance or accidental in the life of a Christian, whereas games of skill, such as golf and tennis and baseball, are beneficial for you physically and mentally. Most sports are beneficial and helpful, but one must keep balanced here. Never get to be like that preacher who walked into the church door one day, and the, one of his deacons said, I think you're playing too much golf, preacher. You're holding your Bible in an overlocking grip. Worldly amusements like dancing, cards, the theater, magazines, smoking, painting, modern style of dress and hairdo, hobbies, television, fiestas, clubs, and dating, all that stuff come under the heading of questionable things. And the questions about them are, can be solved by three simple rules. One, you must separate yourself from anything that is designed to overthrow your faith in the Bible, such as infill or atheistic clubs or Christian schools that change the verses, or Christian schools that put a doubt in your mind about the verses, or Christian schools that attack the verses, or Christian schools that recommend the Alexandrian text of the Jesuit Reims in 1582. Anything designed to overthrow your faith in the Word of God, you'd better stay away from. You must separate yourself from anything that would destroy your testimony. Your testimony is one of the most priceless things that you possess here on the earth. You should have things fixed, so you should always be able to stand up and tell people what you believe and why you believe it under any kind of a condition, and a condition where you can't is a wrong condition. And finally, thirdly, you must separate yourself from anything that would debase your morals and lead you to sin. If playing cards eventually leads to gambling, you better quit it. If dancing calls you to have impure and holy desires, then you've got to quit it. Now, these are the things that Christians fight about. That is, they want to do what they want to do when they want to do it. The consideration of the fact that they should be submissive to God and yield to the Holy Spirit and bearing a cross doesn't enter the average Christian's mind. What the average Christian in America wants to do is to find out how much he can get away with that's not sin. And the first consideration of the average church member of America has nothing to do with what can I give up for Christ, what can I do for Christ, what can I deny myself for Christ. The average Christian is occupied in America with only one thing. How much of the things that I like to do can I do without crossing the line? Strangely enough, this is the negative approach. And these are the people that whine so much about negative preaching. The biggest bunch of gripers about the negative, critical preaching are the people who think negatively about the Word of God. And instead of looking at positively, what can I do for Christ, what's right, What's holy? What's good? What's self-denial? What's bearing the cross? What's pleasing God? These people who can't stand negative preaching think, what's wrong with cards? What's wrong with dancing? What's wrong with gospel music? 
you know, the African kind. What's wrong with the new translations? What's They're negative. And that's why when you begin to preach the negative past of the Bible, these childish, spoiled brats nearly have a heart attack because you step on their toes. Now, here's some biblical rules we can follow. Number one, if your action causes a brother in Christ to stumble, then avoid it. 1 Corinthians 8.13 says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Paul was willing to deny himself the harmful pleasures of any kind if they hindered his testimony. Number two, seek guidance from God by prayer and Bible study regarding a particular issue. Strive always to have a conscience void of offense before God and man. Acts 24.16. Nearly every problem you've got can be solved by simply going back in the bedroom. You better listen. I'm not just talking. Nearly every problem you have can be solved by going back in the bedroom and shutting the door and getting down on your knees and say, Lord, I want you to show me if such a thing is right or such a thing is wrong, and if it's right, I want to do it, and if it's wrong, I want to quit it. And you'd be amazed how much light you'll get there that you can't get at a Christian school. Third rule, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. Can you do a certain thing to God's glory? If the answer after prayer is no, then the thing becomes sin, because James 4.17 says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. In all things you sanctified common sense. God is a reasonable being and desires to reason with you on the matter. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together. If you think God's being unreasonable, demanding certain things of you, why don't you get along with him and talk it over? You must separate yourself from anything that harms your body, physically, mentally, or emotionally. Paul said, What know ye not your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, you're not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Is what you're doing pleasing to Christ? Would Jesus do it? If he wouldn't do it, then you shouldn't do it. Do you think if Jesus Christ on earth today, he'd smoke? I didn't say he wouldn't. I asked you what you thought about it. Do you think if Jesus Christ were on earth today, he'd uh, spend his time sitting around listening to African sex music and think it was gospel music just because it had the word God in it and Jesus in it once in a while? If Jesus Christ were around today, do you think he'd waste two and a half hours shuffling cards and trying to get a good hand? I didn't say, wouldn't I ask you, do you think he would? Will doubtful things strengthen your testimony? Will they weaken your testimony? Now, there's some very helpful scriptures for the child of God deciding these things, at least deciding them in such a way as to please God. Romans 12, 1-2. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, that's the plain command of Scripture, that conformity to the world system in which you live is a sin and displeasing to God. James says in James 4, verse 4, You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You want to be God's enemy? All right, be friendly with the world. You want to be God's friend? Then cut them off. 
you so, but Brother Ruckman, I, I know you're so worldly you don't understand what I'm talking about, do you? Christ said, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You say, well, I wouldn't be showing love. No, you're such a milksop already, you don't have the backbone to stand up like a man. That's your problem. You say, well, if I cut them off, then, I, then I wouldn't be showing the love that a Christian ought to show. Listen, God never told you to try to be a Christian like the world thought a Christian should be. He told you to be the kind of a Christian the world wouldn't think was a Christian. He told you not to be conformed to the world. Now, the world has its own idea of what a Christian should be, and that's the kind you should never be. When the world thinks about a Christian, it always thinks about a nice, sweet, soft, charitable, loving person who will put up with anything. That's what the world thinks a Christian is. Many men of the world think the Christian is a sweet, quiet, philosophical, talking, passive resistance, civil disobedience revolutionary who came to overthrow the establishment. That is what a Christian is not. That's the world's idea of a Christian, and that's the kind of a Christian you're not to be. The Christian in the New Testament are strangers and pilgrims on this earth, Hebrews 11:13, and the ones that conformed to the world were given the bum's rush. Paul said of Demas in 2 Timothy 4:10. Demas forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed. Second Corinthians 6.17 says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and ye shall be sons and daughters to me, saith the Lord Almighty. Every child of God listening to my voice should choose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Let us not separate with the air of superiority, but let us separate. Let us not separate as proud, whitewashed Pharisees who are better than anybody else, but let us separate, us separate knowing that God has set us apart not to be like other people, that our goodness is of Him, not of us, our righteousness is of Him, not of us, our victory is of Him, not of us, and we're to have nothing to do with this world or this world system because this world is not our home. Our affections are to be set on things above, not on things on this earth. Or as Christ said, lay up your treasure in heaven, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Or as Paul says, and says it clearly, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts thereof. Every problem you have along the line of separation and conformity is a heart problem. If you love God and love the Bible, you'll not love the world and the things in it, and if you love the world and the things in it, you will not love God and love the Bible. No man can serve two masters in spite of the contemporary baloney put out and propaganda the effect that some Christians have been successful in doing it. Wherever they became successful in the world, they became unsuccessful in God's sight. For in God's sight, that which is highly esteemed among men, Luke 16, is an abomination in the sight of God. May God help you to live the separated life.